Welcome to the Same Op Specialty Podcast. Today we are with Colonel Fredericks, who is a physician in the Army. Sir, would you mind telling us a little about yourself? Start with uh, where you're from and what specialty you're in. Okay, so I am, well, I guess I'm from Ohio now. I've lived in Ohio longer than my, or any place else the rest of my life. I was born in Oregon. I um, was raised most of my life in the Pacific Northwest. Went to college in California, came to Ohio, went to medical school, uh, met my wife, and stayed in Ohio. So I've been in Ohio since 1988. Uh, my specialty is in family medicine. Great. And what medical school did you attend? Ohio University College of Osteopathic Medicine. Fantastic. And then where did you go from there in terms of your residency training? I did the better part of a year in anesthesia at a place called Youngstown Osteopathic Hospital, which eventually closed. They had severe systemic problems in the program that they didn't tell us about as residents. Well, I figured that out pretty quickly after being there for a few months. And I decided that I didn't like working with surgeons. And so anesthesiologists have to work with surgeons. And so I decided to leave that program. I was the first person to voluntarily leave that program in 40 years of its existence. And I went back and did family medicine residency. Well, I'm sorry to hear about the anesthesiology, but it sounds like family medicine ended oh, up being no. a perfect that was the best decision I ever made. So tell us a little bit about uh, why you decided to pursue family medicine. Because it's the greatest of all non-surgical specialties. As a family physician, I have practiced in everything from disaster relief medicine to uh, working as an intensivist for the VA, hospitalist, regular family medicine, you name it, I, I have covered the scope in pr real primary care. I don't, think of, I don't think of emergency medicine and pediatrics as primary care. I think of them as specialties. Family doctors are the only doctors that are the true generalists. We do everything from birth to death, and we're trained to do that. And so, and I worked, most people know this, I worked for about 13 years actively as an emergency physician. And because of my family medicine background and because I had a really good residency I was qualified to work inpatient, outpatient, you name it, and so I have. I've been a hospitalist at times, an outpatient, you name it. Why did I start doing emergency medicine? Because I wanted to get out of debt, and because the easiest way to do that as a, as a family practice resident was to moonlight, and the easiest place to moonlight would be in the emergency department because where I live in southeast Ohio, there are always emergency rooms that are understaffed, and they need doctors to come in and work those shifts, and so... From the time I was a first, as soon as I got my license uh, after my internship year, what, what you guys might call a transitional year now, I was hired at Southern Ohio Medical Center to work in their emergency room. And so I, I worked in an emergency room for all the way through residency. I also worked in the emergency rooms in, in my hospital where I was doing my residency and eventually stopped, did a couple of years, about four in regular family medicine, outpatient inpatient combined. I just didn't do any emergency medicine. And then 9-11 happened and I realized I was going to have to go to war. And so I closed my family practice down and went back and practiced emergency medicine for the next, but over a decade after that. That's all I did was emergency medicine. You mentioned some of the pros of family medicine. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the pros and the cons of both family medicine and emergency medicine? Well, I don't know that there are many cons to family medicine if you're thoughtful and you've done the right residency. If you haven't done the right residency, you could find yourself in a real pickle. For instance, you, if you're going to be a family doctor, you do not do an ambulatory family medicine residency. That would be a really bad idea. 
because you're going to be replaced by a nurse practitioner, a PA, as soon as the next corporate health you know overlord decides that you're not. They can replace you cheaper, right? Right. Uh, so you need to find uh, a good, preferably unopposed, family medicine residency where the family medicine residents run the hospital, like I did. That gives you the breadth of scope you need to be able to show in your logbooks, et cetera, procedures and experience that will open doors for you in other areas, especially being a hospitalist, right? The cons, I really, I don't have any cons because, and it's not because I have confirmation biases about this. I, I really have been able to do everything I ever wanted in medicine because of my residency. So whether it was in combat, practicing as a brigade surgeon, a battalion surgeon, uh, doing uh, missionary work as a, in humanitarian assistance, uh, being a hospitalist now, I've done everything because of my family medicine residency. Things I would not have been able to do as an ER resident. And that's the problem with ER residencies is everything that ER is a glorious thing. It's a really, it's a really tough thing. Most ER doctors don't enjoy full careers because they burn out and they don't have any fallback unless they've done a fellowship in critical care or pre-hospital work or something. What are they qualified to do? They're qualified to work in an ER. And they don't have a lot of inpatient experience. They don't have a lot of uh, continuity care experience. And so people are hesitant to hire an ER doctor where they wouldn't be hesitant to hire a family physician who's done a inpatient, outpatient, combined, ambulatory, inpatient residency. Uh, because it, it's just different. It, it's a different form of medicine. So very different, actually. You know, they treat, treat, that's the whole ER philosophy, or admit, get it to someone else. Well, family doctors were like, yeah, I'll start treating you here, and then I'll admit you, and then I'll continue your care in the hospital, because that's what I, I know how to do. So if I saw anything, the downside, like I say, I don't see a downside to family medicine. Some people might argue pay, but I've been one of those fortunate physicians where I'm, I make in the 99th percentile of all family doctors in this country. I, I've never had a problem with pay. Uh, if you're a conscientious physician and you do your job and you're willing to work, you can make as much money as you ever wanted to make as a family doctor and do it legally. I'm not talking about running pill mills and that sort of thing. I'm talking right. about just doing good work. You'll get paid and you'll be compensated. The plus of an ER physician is you typically work 10 to 12 shifts a month. You can leave it whenever you want to, go on a vacation, whatever you want to do. You make pretty good money. I mean, the, the real mercenaries out there when they can't stab a shift at, say, Cook County or Tampa General sometimes will hold out for $900 to $1,000 an hour, and they'll get paid it because there's no one to work those shifts, and they have to staff the ER. The downside of being an ER doctor is anytime the hospital gets a, the idea that they don't like your group, they fire you, and you walk in the next day and figure out you don't have a job. You burn out. There's a high burnout rate. It becomes the, what the five diagnoses of ER, headache, back pain, shortness of breath, chest pain, motor vehicle accident. That's like 95% of your whole life. Headache, back pain, motor vehicle accident, chest pain, shortness of breath. And so it, it gets to be a little repetitive, which is good because you get really good at working up, say, acute cardiac uh, syndrome, that kind of thing. But it gets boring after a while, and, and you lose sight of what happens at the other end. I have a, a thought about this. The ER doctor is always wrong and always bad. Because when you go to medical litigation, no one remembers the ER doctor, right, unless they screwed up. They remember their family doctor, and they remember the surgeon that ultimately fixed every one of their problems, but the ER person was in the middle. And they were, they, they, you know, a short episode doesn't allow a relationship to be built with the patient. So that's the downside. 
again, the burnout's a big thing. If at 15 years you're totally disgruntled with your life and you're burned out, that's a really tough thing to go through. And I faced some of that. That's one of the reasons why I left ER was I got tired of it. I just got tired of not seeing my patients and knowing what happened to them. And then uh, I don't think that litigation is a big deal. I mean, if you practice conscientious medicine, you'll probably get sued at least once in your lifetime, but it's not a, a frequent thing. If you're doing good medicine, you don't get sued. I, you can, but it's pretty rare, so I don't think that's it. Uh, I was wondering, have you noticed any differences in your role as a physician in the military versus uh, on the civilian side? Yeah, I have rank. <laughs> yeah. So, so instead of having some pogue that has got a master's in healthcare administration telling me how to do my job or that I need to work harder or I need to do something differently, um, in the military, unfortunately, I have as much rank as you can get before you become branch of material, and, and that means that I pretty much get what I want. And... I try to always err on the side of being a good patient advocate, which means that what I want is the best thing for my patient. So when I have a lieutenant colonel mm -hmm. orthopedic surgeon, this actually happened in Iraq, who didn't want to see patients because they thought it was inconvenient for them or overburdensome, um, after I let them ventilate for a little bit, I was able to say, well, lieutenant colonel, this is Colonel Fredericks, and what I'm telling you is give me a good time for your clinic to see my patients. And if you don't want to take care of soldiers, just tell me. I'll go find an orthopedist that does. And it very quickly changed the conversation. And there was no reciprocity because no one's going to take on an Army 06 that's advocating for patient care. It's really, it's really liberating. I wish more people experienced that because when you get out into the regular world and you're telling people, I am tired, I'm burned out, I can't keep up these hours, they say, oh, yeah, we're going to expand hours by three hours a day and we're not going to give you any additional help. And you're saying, I'm a danger to patients. I can't work faster uh, it's going to be a problem. There are very few sympathetic ears out there in corporatized medicine, right? Mm -hmm. The people that enjoy those freedoms are people in the military, people in direct primary care uh, who actually maintain their autonomy, which is a great thing. But as soon as you become a minion of a large structured health system without the benefit of rank, because the Army is, the military is a large structured health system and DHA is a massive structured health system, but you have rank. You have some authority and pull. You go to work for McMedicine or corporate medicine, you don't have any rank. You're just another staff physician that they will be happy to tell you if you don't like your working circumstances, you can go somewhere else. And so I've worked diligently in my lifetime to maintain my autonomy as a physician. And um, that's a good thing. It's better for you mentally. Have you noticed any differences in the training between... Uh, military and civilian residency programs or uh, just out as an attending? Have you noticed any uh, uh, differences in practices outside of what you had already mentioned? Yeah, and I, I hesitate to say this because I'm dealing, I am the HPSP advisor at OU, and <laughs> I, I, I firmly believe in advocating for military residencies, but if I had the choice, I wouldn't do a military residency, and I would get in a lot of trouble with my colleagues, some of whom are well-known in AMOPS, and I respect them profusely, but I am the product of a civilian residency and the breadth that that entails. I'm also the product of military medical training as well. And the biggest thing I worry about in military medicine residencies is, is volume. I mean, I saw thousands of patients in my residency. And I know that the military, medical, the military surgery residencies the, they struggle with cases. They struggle getting enough cases. They have to outsource to civilian, to the civilian side to get enough cases. And same thing with the breadth of family medicine. You need to see a really sick population 
I mean, it's easy to take care of well people. They don't need any care. I mean, you give them, they gave babies their shots, their well baby checks, and pat them on the head, and off they go. You need to be in a place where people are really sick, and you learn what really sick looks like. And there's a lot of messed up people. And to some degree, there's some of that exposed in a military population. But generally speaking, military populations may be pretty healthy. And so the military tends to promote that. And, and so I, I struggle with this. Like I say, I, I have a friend of mine who would probably vociferously disagree. And I also have friends at AACOM, which would look at the equivalent training. And I think on, on balance, you will not be at a deficit by doing a military medicine residency. You just won't be as plussed up as you would be in a civilian residency. So if everybody's at the same baseline coming out for their boards, you'll certainly be qualified, competent, capable of going out and doing good medicine. But, I mean, I saw, because I did an ambulatory inpatient, outpatient, uh, unopposed residency in a critical access hospital in Appalachia, I saw really crazy stuff. Like, I saw lots of advanced lung disease, cardiac disease. You, I mean, you name it, I saw it. And it, because the population I was dealing with was really messed up. And so I think it's helpful. Again, I wouldn't discourage anybody from doing a military residency, especially if they're offered it. For the reasons I, I thought of before, you are a captain when you start out as a resident in a military residency. And people respect the rank. And that takes a bit of pressure off you versus in a civilian residency where everything is based upon performance. And most medical students I know are very thoughtful people. They're going to do hard work. They're going to work really hard. But it's nice to have one more reason for people not to mess with you. Going off of that, so what outside of rank, what has led you to continue your military career? Because I love the people I work with. You know, people in the military are less than 1% of the U.S. population. And um, they, are, they are a unique breed of cat. They are people who, you know, they may have entered the military. We're not talking about the, the contractee, the, 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 the six-year wonder, so to speak, the HPSB student who says, I'm here, I'm here for six years, I'm out. Okay, whatever my payback is, I'm just paying off my school. I don't have any loss of respect for them. Okay, they're, they're taking a very smart avenue to get their education because they have no debt. They're taking a lot of burden off themselves, and they're willing to put the uniform on and all that entails to get that taken care of. Um, and that's, I have a lot of respect for that. Or the enlistee who comes in for an initial three or four year or six year contract, and when they're done says, I did my time, I'm out. Nope, nothing wrong there. Nothing wrong with a person who says, I'm going to the military, so I don't know what else to do. If they do, if they do honorable service, glad they're there, even if they leave after a couple of years. Education, of course, one of the best benefits of the U.S. military is we, we fund education like crazy. But the people who stay for a long time become your closest and dearest friends. For instance, just today, next, next week, okay, I don't know when this will air, this interview, but next week we'll be in Las Vegas for the AMOPS conference, okay? The AMOPS conference is in Las Vegas. I was at a school with Colonel Al Flowers, who actually runs the medical program at Nellis Air Force Base. Al is the new Surgeon General for Space Force. I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool for the, the Air Force HPSB students to meet the new Surgeon General of Space Force who's coming in, Al Flowers, because I know him. He's a friend of mine. So, Because we went to a school together last year, and I got to know him really well. So I texted Al, and I said, hey, Al, i got a question for you. It's not an emergency. He's already sent a text back to me. And I'm going to say, Al, if you're in town, do you mind stopping by AMOPS and maybe mingling with some of the 
some of the students there. They'd be inspired by this. I mean, he's got a great story uh, and a very personable man. I mean, he's a really good good guy, and he's an Air Force officer. And I just think it's a good thing. Well, those relationships are very, very rare in the civilian sector. I have a mentor that will be at AMOPS who happens to be a Navy Admiral. I have another mentor that's a three-star Air Force General. I have other mentors that are in the Army. Um, people that I can call up and say, I don't quite know what to do with this. I think I'm pretty smart, but you know what? I've exceeded my, my intellectual capacity on this one. And they'll say, sure, Todd, let me help you out. That, that's a very, very um, integral part of career military service, whether you're a reservist like I am or you're active duty. And be honest, the bulk of my mentors, um, well, I'd say parity. I have as many active duty mentors as I have reserve component mentors. And in a total force of career servants, of service people, those boundaries blur a lot. Because I wear more overseas service bars than anybody I know on active duty. I've deployed more into combat than anybody I know on active duty, okay, Other, outside in the officer ranks. In the enlisted ranks, that's a different sort of situation. But, I mean, there's a mutual respect there. And they, they figured out pretty quickly that reserve physicians, we the load, we, we bowl the load. There's respect there. And so... Yeah, I just don't find that anyplace else. I mean, within the operational community that I've been in, in aviation, our aviation retirement dinners, I had conversations today with a lot of retired aviators on Facebook, just bantering. They're lifelong friends. I mean, they're people that, that I'm not so much, I'm doc, but I'm a soldier first. And so that's sometimes nice, too, because I'm in an environment where as a subject matter expert in the military, I'm, I'm still a soldier, but but. I, I am a doctor, but I'm, I'm a soldier. We're all soldiers. So there's, a, there's an equality there that allows us to have a free exchange of ideas. It's not yeah. that intimidation of, oh, you're Dr. Frederick, so I can't talk to you in the real world, right? That doesn't, it doesn't really exist in, in the military. And that's a nice thing. You know? No, I, I, I completely agree with that. I think that there is a, a mutual respect because we all share a similar role uh, in the military. Yeah. Uh, when compared to the civilian aspect where there's some uh, there's a different dynamic between patient-physician relationship. Absolutely. And, then, and you talked a little bit about your mentors and how they have various roles in the military. Uh, I was wondering if you could discuss some of the roles that you have in the military because I know that you have uh, quite a number of them. Okay, so let's be, let's be careful with this. Um, I am... <laughs> I'm a master flight surgeon in the U.S. Army, okay, and, and I, I would identify myself first and foremost as a master flight surgeon. I'm integral to the aviation community that I work within. Um, it turns out that the guy who replaced me is a better administrative flight surgeon. He's really good at policy, and I was never very good at policy. I wanted to fly airplanes. I didn't really care about paperwork, and so, um, and I only dime myself out on that because I'm not in that job anymore, but I have a trust, I, I developed a trust over 20 some odd years with aviators that would tell me all sorts of things about them that they wouldn't otherwise admit to flight surgeons because I, I, I'm a qualified and rated pilot and I flew with them. I, was, I thought of myself first as an aviator and second of all, well, let me qualify that. I'm not an aviator, I'm a pilot, so there's a difference. And aviators earn that title and designation, but I thought of myself first as a pilot that lived among aviators. And second, as a subject matter expert that happened to take care of them, much as a maintenance test pilot is a pilot that happens to oversee the, the repair and, and reintroduction into, into service of aircraft that have been damaged or needed to be fixed. And that's a really it's an important psychological thing to understand, that when I go out with guys, like I'm going to go out probably day after tomorrow and fly. I, haven't fl I need to get my flight time in. I'm flying with really experienced warrant officer, 
I'll probably do the bulk of the flying, and, and we'll just have a chat, right? Um, and I'll hear about his life. And that, that's an extension of me as a family doctor, that I get to hear continuity in the cockpit. Not only am I watching him for how he manages himself as an aviator, but I also get to hear how he's doing as a person. And that's how you maintain, you know, your little flock of aviators or, or pilots in the Air Force or, or, you know, aviators in the Army or Navy, pilots in the, I think they're Marine Corps, Marine Corps aviators, Marine Corps pilots. I think it's a Marine Corps pilot, Air Force pilot, Naval aviator, Army aviator. I could have the Marine thing wrong. But anyway, you, you, you go out and you fly, and that's how you develop an understanding of what your flock is made up of. And then you get into regulatory stuff. I have a colleague who's very good at regulation first. I'm not so sure. I, I kind of could concern sometimes that he's not as much of a pilot as he should be because that's the community, right? Just like if you're an SF doc, <clears throat> you jump out of airplanes, right? You, you scuba dive. You do all that stuff because you've got to build the trust of the folks you're working with so that they'll tell you about themselves. You, they see you as one of their own. That's a really awesome place that I've enjoyed in my career. My role, the state surgeon of West Virginia, means that I oversee the medical readiness of 4,000 people. Um, I look at their immunizations, at their, if, if they pop positive on drug screens, if they, if they need to be kept in the military because of a medical problem, if they need to be released from the military for a medical problem. I have to discipline doctors. In fact, I've got a completed 15-6 that I just did for our adjutant general that I'm now bound to take corrective action based upon my recommendations to him. And he said, these are good corrective actions because of this problem. Now implement them, which is a completely different thing in the civilian world. You don't have that kind of decisive action, right? So um, I happen to have a really good staff, a really good deputy state surgeon. He's the best in the United States. Actually, that's not hyperbole. He's actually recognized as the best state surgeon in the United States. Uh, he happens to work for me. He's a lovely man, SF guy, PA. But we have a good team, and in that job, I have oversight of all sorts of things, um, Not to, not one of which would be uh, it's a subject matter expert for the country partnership program. So we have country partnerships with Peru and Qatar. So I went to Peru last year. I don't know if I'm going to Peru next year. I'm going to Kuwait next year. I know that because I'll be functioning as a, a fill-in for a brigade surgeon slot that's empty for one of our brigades. I also get to be the task force uh, surgeon for the JTF for the Boy Scout Jamboree. And that happens next year at Beckley, West Virginia, the National Scout Jamboree. So in that role, I have to oversee the military support of a city of 35,000 people that shows up in West Virginia for 10 days. And that means covering everything in PrevMed, like epidemiology and working with state and local officials, uh, public health officials, um, working with security folks. Like, how, how do we interface the security of a mass casualty situation? You know, mass casualty response. So I'm challenged by that in my job. So th those are the roles I, I play. Operationally, as a flight surgeon, uh, administratively as a state surgeon for West Virginia. Changing topics to our SAMOPS members, uh, what advice yeah. would you give to our uh, SAMOPS members as they begin their medical career? Okay, so the advice I would give is this. Now, this is going to be self-serving. I remind everybody in SAMOPS to understand what SAMOPS is, and I'm echoing uh, Major Schultz in this, but, but Major Schultz and I worked very closely with one another for a long time, and JT wants everybody to remember that SAMOPS members are AMOPS members. Um, AMOPS is an officer organization. We don't distinguish membership between people who are an AMOPS and people who call themselves SAMOPS. We're all officers and we're all members of the same organization. That's important because AMOPS is one of the few organizations that a medical student can be part of 
that they are basically considered a peer as a medical student because you're an officer. You're a commissioned officer of the United States Armed Forces. Therefore, you are a peer. You're a junior peer, but you're a peer to the rest of us. Um, the advice I would give to same ops members is understand the value in the midst of a lot of competing pressures of AMOPS. AMOPS is a microcosm of the military in that the military, as I mentioned, is a place where you can know a lot of people. But I really believe that AMOPS's greatest value, especially for SAMOPS members, is networking. It's one of the only places I know other than AMSIS, maybe SOMA, but SOMA and SAMSA, uh, Special Operations Medical uh, Association, their, their meetings are heavily weighted towards the operational community. Well, AMOPS is going to be everybody. It's going to be people who work in medical activities, people who work in operational units, people who work everywhere from three different branches. And it gives you an opportunity to start knowing people from different branches of the service because you will work with them. You will work in joint operations, and you'll run into people that are in the Navy or in the Air Force if you're in the Army or however that mix works. Or Coast Guard, you know. We've got uh, membership in the Coast Guard, U.S. Public Health Service. So you need to really take advantage of those networking opportunities and don't lose sight of what AMOPS is for you. It is a place to touch base with people and get to know people across a, the breadth of DOD medicine. As far as offering words of wisdom for residents? Actually, my next question is uh, advice on choosing uh, medical specialties and then uh, going further on to that, uh, things you wish you would have known as a medical student or resident. So let's start with specialties. I have a very simple way of choosing a residency. Pick the residency that sucks the least. Pick, pick the specialty that sucks the least. Here's the deal. Medicine is hard, and it doesn't get easier through your lifetime. Um, you, you, you just pick a really hard job. There's a reason why society compensates us the way they do. And the reason why is because they don't want to do the job. They know it's really hard. And they know it's something that usually involves unpleasant things, and they don't want to deal with it. And those things leave a mark over a career, right? You, you see things you don't want to see. The other two is a, a, my wife is a professional photographer, and she's one of those unusual Ohio photographers that's on call by OB units when a baby is stillborn. And her job is to go in and rapidly and in a couple of hours capture all the pictures she can of that child as they rapidly decompose and try to give the parents some photographic memory of that baby. Mm. Uh, it is really grueling work. And my wife is not a medical person. She was a special education teacher and undergraduate, and then she decided quickly she wanted to be a photographer. And so for the last 25, 26 years of her life, she has shot photos, and she's really well recognized for that. So, my, I mean... Same thing with medicine. We deal with dead babies. We deal with people who are really messed up. I mean, we, deal, we hear stories about people that just break your heart about their life and, and how, how much trauma they suffered psychologically, sometimes physically. Um, it takes a toll on a doctor over time. And so you need to look at the residency that you say, you know, if i got to do something really hard for the rest of my life, this thing is the least suckage of all of them. Now, that sounds really negative, but the reality is, is you're going to find yourself in a specialty where you say, yeah, it's work, but you know what? I don't mind it. Like, for instance, you don't want a specialty where 
when you really get into it, and this is why I think people should ask on their rotations, ask their preceptors, what's the worst thing that happens to you in your job? Right? So I'll just use an example. Cardiothoracic surgeons. People probably aren't aware of this, but not infrequently do busy cardiothoracic surgeons have to um, go out and tell a family that the patient's died on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, they're doing bypass, they have them on, or they're doing, a, they're doing a coronary artery bypass surgery, they've got the patient on bypass, and then they can't get them off bypass. The heart's so sick, they can't get it restarted. And they try and they try and they try, but at some point they, they, can't, they can't get it started, and they have to pronounce the patient dead in the OR. That's grueling. And if you understand that that's part of their job, it becomes a little easier to take some of their arrogance sometimes and some of their personality because that doesn't buff out easily. I mean, those kind of things really take a toll on a person. And so I couldn't do a residency where I had to look forward to once a month in a busy practice of going out and telling a wife who just, you know, seven or eight hours before or six hours before was joking with her husband as I consented them and told them what I was going to do and then I have to go out and tell her we, we couldn't get them off the table. I just don't want to deal with that. And so that's not the area for me. I don't care how manually predisposed I am. I don't, I don't, I don't care how much it, the technical aspects of it. It's kind of like anesthesia, right? I love the physiology of anesthesia. I love respiratory physiology, and I love cardiac physiology. I love that stuff. And I had to make a choice. Am I going to be an anesthesiologist? Now, I, didn't, I wasn't smart enough to figure that out before I went to residency, so I had to leave residency. But I told you I don't regret it a bit because my – Nearly a year in anesthesia, I had a thousand intubations that year. I had, you know, I put in central lines in my sleep. I worked the ICU every other night on call. I had so much useful experience as an anesthesia resident. It was like doing a little fellowship in critical care is what it was. And so I left anesthesia and it allowed me as a family doctor to then be more aggressive in my family medicine practice as an inpatient physician. But I couldn't be an anesthesiologist. I don't care how much money you pay me. I couldn't deal with that. I don't like hospitals. I don't like being in hospitals. They freak me out. I like doing tailgate medicine. I like, I like doing house calls. I like meeting people where they're at, you know, with a bag and maybe a, a, a tackle box full of stuff and, and trying to help people where they're at. That's the kind of thing I love. I love being uh, in disaster relief medicine. I like being out in communities, seeing how people are and how they live and trying to meet their needs. That's what turns me on. And, and you see some awful stuff there, right? But... By the same token, it's not stuff that I dread. Yeah. What qualities do you seek in a uh, young officer training in the medical field? Or you can also revert that to uh, what qualities do you seek in a, um, an intern that you would either uh, promote or you would encourage? It's an interesting question because we're having a discussion uh, in my staff about uh, picking leaders. The problem is, is that the military right now has this idea, especially on the active side, they have this up and out mindset. And the problem is, is not everybody is, is suited or best placed in leadership roles. And I don't mean that in the sense of the generic leadership that we're all leaders, that we're all supposed to have a certain bearing and we're supposed to behave a certain way and we're supposed to demonstrate, in my case, the core, Army core values and everything I do. Um, I'm talking about people who really want to sign the checks, you know what I mean, that, that I make the decisions and I'm the one going to get called on the carpet and I'm the one that's going to have to answer to people who wear stars if something goes wrong. That's the type of leader I'm talking about. Not everybody is suited to do that. 
And the problem is, is that we do these officer evaluation reports, which basically are, you know, promote immediately, you know, and, and do all this other stuff. And you've got a really good skilled group of physicians that are technicians, um, which is why for the longest time I wish we, we had a warrant officer six or a warrant officer five special or something like that, where you could pay commensurately a military physician but that they were a technical rank, right? Like a technical colonel, a technical lieutenant colonel, that you're paying that individual based upon their experience and technical expertise, but you're not requiring them to be in some, you don't require them to leave the OR to become the DCCS or to go off and become the hospital commander, although there's so many of those are MSC officers that there are very few doctors doing that. But, but my point is, is that uh, what I look for is what is their skill set? Are they, command track people? Are they people that really want to, to propagate the military? Or are they people that are really good at their skill that want to work in the military and bring that skill set to it? And in this respect, the closest group of people I can find to that are warrant officers in the Army who are subject matter experts. And we don't expect them to run battalions. You know? But a warrant officer five is the equivalent of a lieutenant colonel. Right? I mean, that's a field-grade rank. That's, that's an individual that is highly respected, and they're given deference because of that. But they are technical experts, and we don't put on the burden of them the counseling statements and the mentoring in the command sense that it seems like we generically put doctors in that role. So when I look at a person, what I'm trying to do is how do I fairly assess them? Are they a really good command leader? Or are they a really good subject matter expert? Or are they an amalgamation of both? And we want to get them to the right place. And here's another problem I see. It is the case that if, you're not, if you want to have a career in the military, you better be keeping up with your professional military education. Because it, for the longest time, if you pinned on caduceuses as a medical corps officer, if you did your basic course, um, and it's true by regulation even today, you can be promoted clear up to 06. But the problem is there's nothing more embarrassing to me than an 06 that basically did officer basic and has no other understanding of the military. And so those are the people that are a big pain because they act like glorified lieutenants or glorified enlistees, you know, specialists or, or junior sergeants. You know, they're running around complaining all the time. They're not part of the solution. And so it's really important that Officers that want to make a career out of the military, medical officers included, perhaps more so, do their professional military education, put themselves in a position where they are respected by their peers for their knowledge as soldiers, airmen, sailors, and not just as doctors. We try to change that. Like I say, in my shop, I want to be able to recognize the technicians because I have a couple really good technicians. They don't want to be in command. They want to just really do their job clinically really well, and we need that. But I have, I, I'm trying to figure out the way that we do promotions to where we give, because the promotion system does favor those who want to go into leadership and command. It really does. We need to find a better system, but that's not, that's pay grades above me, and I'm probably too close to retirement to ever effective, affect that change well, but maybe I can influence younger officers to create the conditions for a system that does that. There's a lot of talk, by the way. For some reason, the people, the powers that be, and, and General Dingle talked about this, the active component in the Army, which, by the way, let me preface this with this. I like General Dingle a lot. He's a good guy, uh, the Surgeon General of the Army. He is a really good guy. 
very nice man. But there's this idea that the German army's got it all together because the Germans have got this medical corps, right? And you just kind of, if you're the German Navy, you don't have your own doctors. You have a medical corps. You grab from the medical corps, which is a separate branch of the armed forces in Germany, and you bring a doctor in, and they may be there for a long time or they may not be there at all for very long, but they're the medical corps. They're the support. I don't think that's the right solution. I, I think that, especially in operational units, and, and the Germans do this to some extent too. I have a good friend in the German Navy who has spent his entire career as a medical corps officer in the German Navy. And he's a, he's a uh, lieutenant, he's a commander, so he's a lieutenant colonel equivalent. He, he's been lucky enough to stay with the German Navy, but he's still a medical corps officer. And, and I, I don't think that's necessarily the right solution, although there are people in the United States Army that say, well, the Germans got this all wired up. But their idea is that, well, if we just have a medical corps, then when we're short, we just plug and play. But like I told you at the beginning of this conversation, in operational units, you can't just plug and play. Practicing medicine in the military is not just showing up and doing sick call. Practicing medicine in the military is understanding what the role of that unit is and by default the individuals of that unit in support of what that unit's doing, being invested in that mission as part of the support package that is part of the overall structure of the organization. I mean, it's, it's really understanding what that commander's needs are and where he's going and, and help or her where she's going. It could be either one, right? I've worked for female generals, too, and female colonels, so, yeah. So my point is, is understanding their world and being able to give them good advice. But if you're a person that invests yourself in the unit and says, I know the lineage of this unit, I know its legacies, I know its, its heraldry, I know its operational mission set, I know all that, and I'm, I'm educated, and I can have a, a conversation, pretty soon the command's going to see you as something more than just a doctor. They're going to see you as a valued staff officer that can be depended upon for good judgment, especially in the realm of human intelligence. So there's human intelligence that we gather outside in operations, but there's human intelligence internal to the organization. And sometimes the commander needs to know, what are the troops really thinking? What are you seeing, Doc? Because if the commander walks in a room, I can tell you as a commander, the vibe changes. How are you doing, soldier? Great, sir. Really? Yes, sir, everything's great. Well, probably not. But if I'm that fly on the wall that's watching the system and I'm not the distraction, the commander's coming to the room, I can say, well, sir, when you walk into a room, things change. I'm going to tell you how it really feels. And, here, and, oh, by the way, you always want to have a solution. You never want to advise your commanders about a problem without thinking through what it might be an effective solution because most commanders don't want a problem in the first place. If they had a solution, they probably would have implemented it. So be ready for that when they seek your counsel. They might just say, well, go pound sand. I already want to know about it. just life. Military sucks. Drive on. But it might be, well, what do you think we should do about it? You better have an answer. You better have thought it through. Well, I think this might be helpful. And you do that, you're going to be seen as a very value-added individual, and you'll find yourself in places you never thought you'd be because your name will get around as a person who takes it seriously, and other commanders will want you with them. Other units will want you with them as a good guy or a good girl. Very true. And I think that we, uh, we get a lot of that in medical school where we present uh, an issue to an attending, and their next question is, so what are we going to do about it? And as a fourth-year medical student, you kind of like deer in the headlights, but you need to have an answer. Otherwise, why are you bringing this issue up if you're not going to contribute to the solution? Exactly. Um, One needs more problems. Uh, my last question is, how 
uh, do medical students embellish on those uh, qualities of being a, a phenomenal officer in the military? How do they focus on the qualities while they're in medical school now? Oh, that's something that's a big thing. In fact, as soon as we get off this, there's a policy that was presented to me. I happen to, I happen to go to a college, and you do too, that is very supportive of military members and HPSP students, and that's not the case with all medical schools. Most civilian medical schools have no idea what the military is all about. They see officer development programs or officer uh, uh, training courses as a detra distractor from medical training. And so I think one of the biggest roles of AMOPS, and as of, well, I don't know, next Sunday, Sunday after next, I'll be a past president of AMOPS. I won't be the immediate past president anymore. I will truly be out of that role. And one of the things I wanted to do, uh, whether it's as, as a trustee or whether it's as just a member of AMOPS, is continue to work with the comms to shape that understanding that officer development in medical school is part of medical training, that military physicians are not physicians first, they're officers first, and they need that training. They need that training all through school because it's leadership, it's how do you manage people and organizations, it's, you know, whether or not you're a surgeon in an OR trying to manage an OR team or you're a person running a hospital. You know, these are really good lessons for everybody to know, and we happen to be in, introducing it in our HPSB students early on. Um, skill qualifications, the airborne course, ranger school. Ranger school might be a stretch because it's too long. Uh, the flight surgeon course, getting people through those places so that when they come out as captains at the other end, they're fully qualified to go to a breadth of different duty assignments because we've already got them prepared to go do that stuff. Um, I would say this, too. I counsel more and more HPSP students to become GMOs. There's a lot of value to being a GMO. There really is. I, I know people say, well, I'll miss out on residency. I've been practicing medicine now for, well, really since 1994, so whatever that puts, 26 years. Look, three years is nothing. Three years is literally nothing. And the three years a person who wants to be a urologist spends as a GMO in an operational flight billet or supporting SEALs, or with MARSOC, or with uh, the 82nd Airborne, or the 1st Infantry Division as a general medical officer is incredibly helpful to your overall career. Because if you think like a generalist coming out of the bat and you've seen a breadth of problems, you'll approach specialty medicine in a different and more effective way. You'll appreciate the limitations of primary care you'll be more collegiate with your primary care colleagues and, and there'll be better communication and better patient care. And so I think if I was an HPSP student, I would really want to be a GMO uh, first because that, that and, and again, I told you, the question was, how do you stay up with your officer training? Part of that is on us. I mean, I'll just give you, give you my dream for OU. OU is not a military medical school like U-Shoes. U-Shoes will argue that they are giving officer education throughout all four years of college, and that is true. And it's also what I use with AACOM. When General Silberg and I go to AACOM in April and have a talk with them, we're going to say, look, U-Shoes graduates people in four years, and they go through all this leadership development stuff and officer training. Why is it that we have a problem in the osteopathic community not universally recognizing that? But even more so, you know, my goal at OU is in our new curriculum 
is to develop a military medicine elective. And it's not for military people, although I would expect that maybe HPSP students might do it. It's really for non-military people. But the part of the components of that military medicine elective are the exact same officer development program I run all my WVSOM students through as a state surgeon in West Virginia, because I have like seven or eight WVSOM students at any given time that are part of my unit. And I make them sit down every Saturday. We do some officer development. We talk about principles of leadership. We do it through some guided readings and stuff. I want to bring that to OU so that the, the person interested in military medicine that doesn't want to be in the military gets the same leadership development and training that uh, my soldiers get. And I'm hoping eventually that HPSP students would avail themselves of that too. And if I could see the, the, the future 20 years from now, it would be that within the osteopathic colleges that every HPSP student is just a given that they will be going on um, their uh, officer basic or uh, COTS or whatever you have, whatever you have, service branch specific, that that's just a given. They're, they're going to go do that, and they're going to do a couple other courses, and we're giving them full credit for it, and they'll be fine, and they'll pass their boards, and they'll do all that other stuff, but they will be with their peers out of U-shoes in terms of where they are in training, that they won't be struggling to catch up with Officer Advanced or the Captain's Career course. They will not be struggling to get back up with their peers from U-shoes, because right now, here's the problem, and I'm going to speak boldly about this, and it's no offense. I know people at U-shoes. I like U-shoes people. Uh, it's nothing against the institution, but... The people making policy on healthcare in the military, if you look at their resumes, there's a lot of U-shoes grads. And that is never a good thing. Not because it's U-shoes, but because we understand in academics that something called academic nepotism. You know, if all you have is a hammer in your toolbox, U-shoes graduates, every problem is a nail, right? They need, we need to be able to get people out for the comms that have equivalent qualifications to U-shoes so that when it comes to DHA big decisions for military policy, that we've got a lot of different academics out there in medicine who are qualified officers who see the world in different ways colored by their respective institutions and their respective experiences to come up with a bigger toolbox. And I'm saying, well, no, really this is like a, a Phillips head screw that needs a Phillips head screwdriver. We don't necessarily choose the choice. What I'm asking for is more. 50% of the forces are reservists. Where's our seat at the table in policy? I had a conversation with one of the senior heads of DHA, and they were all flipped out about civilian mainstreaming military health care into the civilian sector. And I said, well, it's really funny because half the force gets its care from civilians, right? Every reservist goes to a civilian doctor. You don't have to have... Um, you don't have to have uh, all these major, you don't have to try to salvage this big, massive military medical system uh, for fear that people won't get care if they don't have a military medical system, right? You need to think about other types of options. Any of us on TRICARE Remote, or TRICARE, I guess it's TRICARE Prime, TRICARE Remote, I forget what it is, the closest military medical center is Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. No one's driving two and a half hours to go get care, you know, we're going to go to Parkersburg, or we're going to go to Columbus, or we're going to go to, you know what I mean? So we have active duty people that are going and getting care in the civilian sector all the time. But you list the people at DHA, and sometimes they think that the only place a military person gets care is in the military health care system. That's because the problem is nails, and it's not. It may work perfectly fine in the military district of Washington where you've got Bethesda, Walter Reed, Belvoir, you've got all these people really, places really close. But if you're out in the hinterlands of this country where a lot of military people are, 
you may not have that choice. We really appreciate you having on the same specialty podcast with us today. Uh, again, this is Colonel Fredericks, uh, family physician in the Army. My name is Lieutenant Anthony Brusnahan. Uh Thank you for tuning into the Same Specialty Podcast, and we hope you continue to listen.